did. Anyway, anyway, we're tired, and we've just had this little bit of drama, and we've recovered from that, and we've landed. Now, the joy of landing, do you know that? Or was it just me? The joy of landing took over for me. I gave myself that moment to celebrate. I am that guy. I fist pump. I salute the flight attendants. I'm, like, I'm patting fellow passengers on the back. Um, I talk very quickly in quite a high-pitched, loud voice. And I'm just letting me adrenaline out of, we've made it, we've landed, we're safe. You might have guessed it, I'm not the calmest of flyers. And um, anyway, we've, we've got off the plane and we're instantly hit by the wall of heat. You know when they open the door and you're just like, oh, like this. And so um, we're hit by this wall of heat and I've had that moment where I realise I've made a massive error. I'm wearing my jeans. Okay, so I start to panic. I don't know if you've ever done that. And not just panic, because not only am I wearing my jeans, I've got my socks on too. And so this is fast becoming uncomfortable and I'm moving into the zone of like heavy sweating. And um, so in that moment, I am focused. I need you to know I'm, I'm like a focused guy anyway, but I was focused and I'm tired and I'm focused. Now that's not a good combination. So my plan is get off the plane, get through passport control as quickly as possible, get to the hire car, get the air con on, get to the villa, get in the pool. So we eventually get to the Kaya, no, not the Kaya. I always do this, don't I? Kaya Ha, no, car hire. We did this, we practiced this so many times. <laughs> Is this a place somewhere in the world? It sounds like a country. We've got to Kaya. Car hire, car hire. Everyone together, car hire. Okay, we got to the place. And it was out in the, the car park of the airport, and it was roasting on the sun-scorched tarmac. And it's fair to say Paul was um, focused. Still had his uh, jeans and socks on. He was overheating and getting a little grumpy. Yeah, just like a little. Let's just say a little. All right. I know. Who knew? I mean... We all get grumpy sometimes, don't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't judge me on that. Anyway, so we're, we're standing in this little booth. You've got to imagine it. And this lady is, is serving us. And she's taking forever, basically. And she's coming up with all these little extra costs. I don't know if you've ever had that, where you thought you paid for it. But suddenly, you, you're like, you don't know whether or not you have, but you realise you kind of need to, otherwise you're going to be in big trouble. And it's just too big a gamble not to pay for it. So we're hot. We're tired. I'm just a fraction grumpy. And we're having this conversation in broken English. And she's coming up with like every waiver and insurance thing that suddenly you didn't know you need, but you can just feel the cost racking up. And it's going on and on and on and on. And I said to Steph eventually, I'm like, look, I've, I, c I can't do this. I'm going to load the cases into the car, you finish the paperwork, we can't delay any longer, as soon as we're done, we're getting out of it. I am tunnel vision. There is nothing else in my senses or periphery. I'm like, get to the villa, get changed, get in the pool. Now, there's something else you do need to know about Paul. He does not travel lightly. His case once got lost because it was over 35 kilograms, when it was meant to be 23. And this holiday was no different. He had packed everything under the sun in multiple cases for every eventuality. He has stacks of jumpers and jeans, even though he doesn't even really wear those things in the UK, let alone in a roasting hot country. So I'm trying to train him, but 
It's, it's not happening. Anyway, then I discover we've got this sweet car, okay? Things are instantly looking up. Thankfully, with, with all of my stuff, this car is massive. We've got a four by four. I was convinced in the moment we hadn't actually booked anything that good, and I'm just reveling in this upgrade, busting to get the aircon on. And um, the, the odd thing was, there was loads of stuff left in the car, okay? It's like the car... We, if we hadn't have had such an upgrade, I'd be saying to this lady, like, oh, can we make a little bit of a complaint here? It's a bit ridiculous. It was like the person who'd previously hired it had left half of their stuff in the car. So it's like front seats, back seats, boot, I've got stuff in. I start loading our cases into the car. Thankfully, it's a big car, so I'm even, like, using the back seat and all of this. Anyway, I threw in the final thing, and Steph came out of this little booth with the paperwork, and... She's, she's given me like this slightly confused look, and I'm like, I know. How on earth did we get a car this good? How on earth did we get an upgrade like this? And the lady, she comes out with my passport and my driving license, and I'm like, finally, we're done. Or, or so I thought. She starts gesticulating pretty rapidly, and she's speaking in Spanish at a rate you couldn't keep up with. And Steph's giving me like the look, you know? It was this look. It's like, oh, And that's when I said, Paul, that's not our car. That's the lady's car. We've got the Fiat Panda over there, pal, the pink one. Yeah. I'm not joking. It was pink. It was. Not only have we got this little tiny pink Fiat Panda with useless aircon. Like, I took a serious, it was like, ooh. Ooh. You know that moment? It was like, I just took a dent in my pride. And, um... The car hire lady, she's looking at me in absolute disbelief. And actually, I think she was pretty angry because I'd taken all of her stuff out of her car and just <laughs> slung it on the pavement. And um, oh, it was bad. I'm sweating now thinking about it. But have, have, have you ever been focused on the wrong thing? Have you ever put significant amounts of your time, your energy your resources, your convictions, your emotions, your relationships, or your money into the wrong things or the wrong places. You know, where career or status or ego become the priority, where a hoped-for life stage becomes the thing, where comfort and possessions become the focus. You know, tonight we want to give you another opportunity just to press reset just to realign ourselves with Jesus and have a moment to reprioritize and refocus. To declare that there is no other name, that this life and everything in it should be all about Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus and Jesus alone in the way that we live, in the way that we act, in the way that we speak, the way that we spend our money, the way we interact with others, the way that we work, whatever it is, to not only declare it, but to live in the reality and live out the reality that we are to spend ourselves solely on Jesus and passionately extending his kingdom. The passage we want to look at tonight is um, in Matthew 21, and we're going to start at verse 1. So if you've got your Bibles, follow along, but I think it's also going to come up on the screens. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, says, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. 
This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Tonight we want to highlight the remarkable truth, power and opportunity that comes from knowing that we are purposed to carry the king and be carriers of his kingdom. If we fully knew and understood the implications of this, it would change our lives forever. So as we consider what it means to carry the king, we want to draw out three, three things from this passage. Who's told you? Who's moulding you? And who's holding you? So we'll start with who's told you. There's an account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in Mark's Gospel 2. And there it says that when the disciples went to fetch the donkey... The owner did, in fact, question why they needed it, just as Jesus had suspected. The disciples told the guy what Jesus had said, and the owner let them take it right away. This guy hears the command of Jesus, and he responds. He responds to the authority of Jesus. Do we do what Jesus tells us or asks of us? No questions, no smart answers. Are we willing to respond to the voice of Jesus? To respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit? Are we listening? Whose voice are we listening to? Who are we submitting to? Along with our humanness, our own desires, and the culture that we live in, with all its tantalizing offers and pressures, we can easily become entangled. Culture can so easily trip up our kingdom focus. But we are not to roll with culture. We are not to be led by populist thinking. In all the internal and external pressures we face, we are not to conform to the pattern, the thinking, and the behaviors of this world. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and stay in tune with his voice. The greater the affection we have for Jesus and an earnest pursuit of his kingdom will drive out all of the other voices and influences. What Jesus said, what he says, should be abundantly clear if it isn't drowned out or clouded by others. But what and who are we listening to? What what would you give up right away if Jesus asked? You know, a a change in your lifestyle? What, What you drink? What you talk about? How much of a flirt you are? How much you indulge in gossip? What about a career plan? To lay it down or to change direction if Jesus asked you to? What about something you own? Would you give up your front room so a small group might be able to use it? What about your time to serve the poor, to get more involved, 
in the life of the church? How could you use your creativity or your talents? What about your attitude to not be snappy or arrogant or blasé? What about sharing your faith to give up your pride, to realize that he's placed you in the workplace that you are currently in, in the season that you're currently in, whether it's easy or it's not? What about rather than giving something up or giving something away, how would you respond if Jesus asked you to take something up? What about to be passionate about your faith? Would you be passionate about your faith, more passionate about your faith than anything or anyone? Because that's what Jesus asks of us. Are we willing to say of ourselves, let alone our stuff, okay, I'm yours. Use me however you please, wherever you please. I'm here at your service. You know, the passage says this. It says, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. And tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Jesus sends us. You know, Jesus sends us. He sends us out to influence and impact for the sake of his name. His command is our authority. And it unlocks doors, it unlocks lives, and it unlocks resources. We're supposed to do what he says and do it when he says it. We carry the king and the king has authority. We need to be people that live like we carry the king. So often... I think we see God move as we step out, as we take a risk, as we move into that place of risk. You know, the disciples listened to Jesus's command when they went to get the donkey and they were permitted to take it. They didn't just listen to his voice, they had to step out and take a risk, believing that his, he would show up. You know, he shows as we go, it's as we step out that we see the kingdom extend. But the bit between hearing his voice and hearing uh, and seeing the outcome, that's the bit that can be pretty uncomfortable. That's what it is to trust him. That's what it is to depend on him. That really is what the essence of faith is. We mustn't crumble or turn back when we're in that in-between bit where it can feel uncomfortable in the middle ground. We must keep trusting God, knowing that his word is true trusting his voice, waiting for him. You know, there's power and there's authority in obedience, in the act of stepping out as we listen to the often quiet and still gentle whisper of the Holy Spirit. This isn't about success. It's about courage and it's about obedience. To offer for, to pray for somebody for healing at work, to be kind to somebody when others aren't, to be radically generous to our neighbors as we step out and in the act of obedience, who knows what fruit we might find and what and who may be ready to be untied and to be brought to Jesus. You know, in fact, I actually think there'll be more of you tonight for the first time that want to give your life to Jesus. Maybe we'll make time to do that later. But knowing that we're sent by Jesus, that within us we have the power of the Holy Spirit, we carry the King, it's, it, honestly, it's a game changer if we get it. If we see and we understand it's Jesus, if we see and we understand that we carry the king, we live differently, completely differently. In the, you know, in the vineyard, we, we never claim to be the best. You, you'll know that. 
but we're a movement that believes in people, that invests in people, that seeks to see people get involved and get out there and do the stuff that Jesus did. The, the call to the vineyard, it's not just a call to a common vision, but it's a call to a one another. We're called to one another. Since the nature really of what connects us and bonds us together, it's more organic than it is organization. Organizational, the bonding is a, it's a product of a mixture of ingredients. It's a shared vision. It's a clear call from God. It's a recognition of vision and a philosophy and a way of doing ministry, as well as a desire to have relationship with each other within the local church and wider. You know, in the vineyard, we believe that as followers of Jesus, we are commissioned and we're empowered by the Spirit of God to do the works of the kingdom. In fact, we're to seek first the kingdom of God. With Jesus, we're empowered by the, by the Holy Spirit to bring the presence of God's future to the cities, to the towns, to the streets, to the neighborhoods, to the hospitals, to the universities, to the homes and businesses, wherever it is, to the hearts to which he sends us. It really, I think it really boils down to this. It boils down to authority. Who are we listening to? Is it Jesus? What are, you, what are you going to give up? What are you going to give away? What are you going to step into to see the kingdom of God extended in your own lives and the lives of those around you? What risks are you willing to take? What steps of obedience are waiting for you? So, second question. Who's molding you? Verse five says, Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus, a king, our king, came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. At the time, the way a king would have typically entered Jerusalem would have been on a horse with a sword. Jesus isn't just a head of state. He's the king of kings, the lord of lords. Let me just give you... Um, today's equivalent of this kind of occasion. So if a head of state were to visit the UK, there's just a few things that would happen. So the Queen would host a major banquet. The guest list would always be over 170 people. It would be planned over a year in advance and personally signed invitations for the banquet hosted by the Queen would be sent out two months in advance. The banqueting room would be prepared four months in advance five and a half thousand pieces of silver and two and a half thousand items of glassware polished to perfection. Five days before the dinner, the team would construct the horseshoe table. We are talking about a big table. On the day itself, the table would be laid at 8 a.m., first placing the folded napkins, then six pieces of silver cutlery per guest, 12 ice pails, 118 salt cellars. That's a lot of salt. Um, they might need to cut down on their salt intake. Um, anyway, sorry. Um, 140 dishes, 288 dinner plates, and 1,104 glasses added to the table. Dinner would normally take about an hour and 20 minutes, precise. And then, at the end of the meal, 12 pipers would process around the room. And then there's the gifts, which in the past have included a silver box with um, soil from World War I battlefields, jaguars, beavers, horses, and even an elephant called Jumbo. <laughs> and here we have our king. The king who is the promised Messiah, 
expected to liberate the Jews from the oppression of the Roman Empire, riding on a donkey. Not only that, it wasn't even his own donkey. He'd borrowed it. Most Jews of the day missed it. They were expecting a mighty political king who would lead them to a military victory. In this moment, they were hailing him as king. but A week later, they would be crucifying him. We don't want to make the mistake of missing or misunderstanding the coming king. Let's just get under the skin of this a bit more. Let's not miss who the coming king is or how he comes. So Jesus walked all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, which is roughly 63 miles. And he walked the first 61 miles and then rode on a donkey for the final two. Why would he do that? We absolutely believe that it was meant to be symbolic. He wanted to make a huge, unmistakable statement to the people of the time and to us. His humility was and is unrivaled, and his kingdom is like no other. You know, prior to planting the, the vineyard church that we now lead, we used to be part of a vineyard where part of my role was to, to lead the student team. And um, we were at a student barbecue, and once a fresher who had never been to anything before, he came straight up to me and we started chatting. And one of the first things he said to me is, you must be the student leader. And I thought to myself, what a wise, perceptive, young fresher. He's clearly highly intuitive. And um, I held my nerve. I didn't, I didn't say anything. I didn't give away my, my thought process. I just said to him, what, what led you to that conclusion, my friend? See how I called him my friend? You know? And he said, well, because compared to anybody else here, you are just well old. <laughs> and um, I know. What a body blow, you know? But eventually, really, really helpful. You know, understanding who we are, understanding who we carry is crucial. Jesus should be and Jesus needs to be molding our attitudes and our understanding of life. There can be no room for arrogance or no room for it becoming about us. Have you ever found yourself wanting a fanfare? Would you have gone for the borrowed donkey or would you have gone for the stately procession with the God of honor? You know, be honest with yourself. Often in life, I think we can find ourselves living for our egos, for our popularity, to have our name in lights, to get our CV bang on, to get the right career path, to be recognized by friends or family, to be known in the church setting. You know, to have the, the magnetic personality, the perfect image, to be somebody that shows no weakness or vulnerability, to be the big dog or the top dog or be in with the in crowd, to have our needs and our insecurities met, to gain our self-worth from title or turf or whatever it might be. Have you ever noticed in the Gospels that Jesus never used anybody to make himself look good? If you don't care much about who gets the credit, the kingdom will extend much further. 
You know, much research shows that people, what people often say about themselves online is often more aspirational rather than honest. You know, we, we spend so much time marketing ourselves rather than being marked by God. We're not meant to be the ones getting attention. It's meant to be Jesus. And we don't mean to offend you by saying this, and please hear it from the heart, but we're meant to be the donkeys. We're just meant to be the donkeys. It's not about us. We're not meant to be noticed. Jesus is meant to be noticed. He's the one we're carrying. If ever it becomes about us, if ever we think of ourselves more highly than we ought, if ever we have that moment where we think we've made it, we need to get back to being the donkey. We carry Jesus into town. We carry him in every interaction, every conversation, every part of our attitude and our behavior. We carry the king. Nobody in this passage is talking about the donkey. They're talking about Jesus, and it should be the same for us. Don't see me, see him, you know, around your housemates, around your course mates, around your colleagues, around your family or friends. Wherever we are, don't see me, see him. That should be our attitude. We're, we're meant to show off Jesus. We're meant to parade Jesus, not ourselves. People don't need our wisdom. They need his. People don't need our pat on the back. They need his. The job description of a savior is already written and the role is already taken. The savior is Jesus and we're supposed to just carry him. What, what does that actually mean, saying all of that? You know, in everything we do, in everything we say, we should leave people with Jesus, walk humbly, die to our own desires, prefer others, live lives of obedience to the king. And if they don't know Jesus, when we leave them, we leave them with a love and an affirmation that does credit to our king. We're to bring Jesus into town, but before we can do that, he needs to ride straight into our lives. We need his healing. We need his freedom. It's available to us. We just need to take it. You know, as I, as I look back over my life, I've, I've learned to be unashamed about seeking any and every opportunity to encounter the presence of God, to seek his healing, to seek his freedom, to set me free from the things that have bound me. You know, believe me, I've had a lot of stuff to deal with, but I've chose to let him have it despite the cost. We, we kind of can't take it up until we give it up. We can't take up his mantle until we give up ours. Can we ask you tonight, has it started to become about you? Honestly, the challenge is get off the high horse and get onto the donkey. In fact, become the donkey. We can't stand at a distance to this one. You know, you could say, oh, well, the, the, the disciples, they, they just followed a few orders. They went and untied somebody else's donkey and they gave it freely to Jesus. Actually, it went further than that for them and I think it should for us. It says this, verse six, they placed their cloaks on the donkey for Jesus to sit on. You know, they were willing to give something up of theirs to make it smoother for Jesus to be carried into town. You may have heard it said, don't cross oceans for people who wouldn't cross a puddle for you. 
Don't cross oceans for people who wouldn't cross a puddle for you. That is not the kingdom. You know, the kingdom says, cross oceans for people. Love people unconditionally. No conditions attached whatsoever. No wondering whether or not they're worthy. Cross oceans, climb mountains, do whatever you have got to do because life and love isn't about what you gain, it's about what you give to others. Our question to you is, will you get out of the way so the king can take his rightful place in your life? Will you be the donkey so he can be the king? We're not naive enough to think this is easy. It wasn't then and it isn't now. Imagine Rome in the first century. Everything belonged to Caesar. He was referred to as their lord. He was on the coins and pottery and in the poems. He ruled not just politically but religiously too. He was worshipped as the emperor. He was seen as a god and a mediator before the gods. Imagine what it would have been like in that context to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Imagine standing on a street in Rome announcing that a Jewish man from a far province who would eventually be put to death by a Roman governor had been appointed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Imagine what it would have been like to come to Rome with the gospel of Jesus to announce someone else's appointment to the world's throne. Honestly, it would have been put, like putting on a red coat and walking into a field with a very angry bull. And even that, I think, is an understatement. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to announce that he is Lord of all. Confession of Jesus as Lord implies that all religions are not equal. Jesus is the boss of everyone's religion, politics, economics, ethics, and everything else. It's a bold and radical statement. Confession of Jesus as Lord in early Rome was not a matter of intellectual affirmation. It was a life and death issue. It meant standing up to the Caesars of the world who were taken for themselves the praise and power that rightly belonged to God. As followers of Jesus today, our priority is to live lives under the Lordship of Jesus and to make it clear to all that he is Lord of all. What's, what's your Caesar? What workplace, what relationship, what line manager, what financial worry, what fear of people or terror? Let it fall under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let it bow down before him. There can be no other name. It's not enough for him just to be your saviour. He wants to be your Lord. He has to be your Lord. You know, if we have to have anything other than Jesus in life in order to be happy or fulfilled, we may be in trouble. If you've got to be married and Jesus, if you've got to have good health and Jesus, if you've got to have children and Jesus, if you've got to have a big house and Jesus, if you've got to have financial security and Jesus, it's not really going to work out. It's Jesus plus nothing. He has to be enough. The Bible doesn't guarantee us all those other things. The Bible only guarantees us Jesus. If you want a relationship with Jesus, if you're searching for Jesus, if you want more of him, you can have more of him. You can walk with him, you can serve him, you can be comforted by him, you can be counseled by him, you can worship him, and you can rest and you can dwell in his presence. If that's what you're longing for, if that's what you're desiring, you can have it. You may not know 
a great deal about what God wants for your life. But if you do follow whatever you do know God wants for your life and obey whatever you do believe he wants for your life, you'll get more of him and you'll get to participate in extending his kingdom. Final question. There's a lot of questions tonight. Stick with us. Who's holding you? I think it's fair to say we've all got a story of, of pain and of, of joy to tell, haven't we? Some of it known, some of it just often carried in our hearts. Over the years, we've experienced some glorious highs, so many of them, many blessings, but also some pretty, pretty crushing blows. Debilitating and ongoing health issues for each of us, resulting in long periods of time, being housebound and unable to work. We watched Paul's dad die when he was only 52, to a cancer that literally ate him away. We lost a baby who we had been waiting for and longing for for years. We've known times of uncertainty and financial crisis. We've known times of loneliness and overwhelming sadness, to name just a few. But we are so grateful for God's steadying presence through it all, in the good times and in the bad. He has held us and continues to, and we have known and experience the transforming power of that. I'm not saying we're perfect or we always got it right, far from it. But over the years and through all the different experiences, we've kept reminding ourselves in the midst of painful times that we never wanted to look back and regret. We didn't want to regret not just trusting God, letting him be God, letting him be Lord. If anything, the pain we faced and in many ways continue to face has only strengthened our resolve to cling to him, to worship him, and to live out his purposes. It's crucial that we let God hold us. In his presence, we are changed. If we don't transform our pain, we will most likely transmit it. But we have a choice. We can choose pain, or we can choose the person who can heal it. When we truly understand that it's God who's holding us, we can be released and set free from all that might hold us back. I think we have to choose to press in though, even when it's hard, even when it's painful. In choosing joy and in choosing to praise him, regardless of our circumstances, we find more of Jesus and align ourselves with him. He is so faithful and always works out his purposes. But we do have to opt in. When we lost our precious baby just before we were about to uproot our lives and move to a brand new city, it was Jesus who delivered gifts of peace. It was Jesus who renewed our hope. It was Jesus who tenderly entered into our pain. It was Jesus who knew. It was Jesus who really understood. It was Jesus who held us. We could have retreated. We could have backed off. It was devastatingly painful. We could have put off moving to Manchester or planting a church. I think people would have understood. But our king took exceptionally good care of us. He rode right into town. He rode right into our hearts. He held us. He transformed our pain. He renewed us. He used the pain and still does. And he was tender and powerful and still is. Is Jesus holding you? Is he the one holding you? Is he the one in whom you place and have your security? The one in whom you place your hope, your trust and your faith? the rock and the anchor that doesn't budge regardless of pain and any circumstance that surrounds you. 
where is it that you get your significance from? Where do you get your purpose from? Where do you get your encouragement from? Where do you get the desire to live well, to speak well, to love the unlovable, to love the last, the lost, and the least? Where does all of that come from? It comes from Jesus. If he's the one holding you, holding your heart, holding your hopes, holding your dreams. You see, Jesus' love is total. It's complete. It's full. It reaches wide and it reaches the breadth of your experience and your hopes and your dreams. And it's deep. It reaches into your hurts and into your disappointments. If he's not the one holding all of that, then someone or something else will. We want to say tonight, let him have it. Let him have it because it will change you, it will heal you, and it will redeem you. Who's holding you? The answer always needs to be Jesus. You know, verse 10 says this, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? We've got to ask ourselves that question. This weekend, tonight, ask yourselves that question. The whole city was stirred by him. A multitude committed to following him and yet a week later, most of them would try and have him crucified and only a few would be left committed to him. This has got to be more than a weekend. This has got to be a lifetime. It's easy to be passionate here, but it has to make a difference out there. It needs to become an unashamed, unhindered, all in, all the time lifestyle of carrying the king. We want to encourage you tonight to lay down your coat and praise him and let it run deep. Let it be the consistent attitude and posture of a lifetime. The king is coming. He's causing a stir. Don't sit back. Get involved. Let it impact you. Who is Jesus to you? Who or what is holding you? Is it fear? Is it family? Is it friends? Is it your upbringing? Is it unmet dreams and disappointments? Is it the opinion of others? Is it a relationship? Is it the need to be something? Or is it Jesus? The plan of the enemy is always the same. He seeks to confuse our identity, confine our expectancy, create conflict in our relationships, and come against our destiny. He does so because he's afraid of who we are and who we carry. To the Romans, Jesus was causing a public uprising. To the Pharisees, he was rousing a new envy. The chief priests hated him. Pilate would later mock him. The multitude were proclaiming him. The angels adored him. And the disciples followed him. But who do you say he is? And how are you going to respond to him? Does he have part of you or does he have all of you? From here on in, everything changes on your responses to those questions. You cannot silence the coming king. Nothing can, nothing will. No pressure you face, no anxiety you feel. He is the king. Oh, I believe that. You know, there should be a great joy among us. Worship and obedience should be our only response to who he is. It should rise up within us. It should flow out of us. We're called to prepare the way for him. Is Jesus the one holding you? Because if he is, Jesus is your strength. Can we ask you another question? I know we've asked you loads of questions, but how's, how's your joy? You know, do you choose joy? Do you choose to clothe yourselves in joy? Joy is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. 
the, the king is coming. The king's coming, we should know and we should have joy. The spirit of God should be birthing that within us. It goes beyond circumstances. If he's holding us, we should have an elevated perspective. We're chosen, we're stored, we're comforted, we're counseled, we're discipled, and we're empowered. We carry the hope of the world. We can't shy away from the truth of that and the difference that makes not only to us, but also to those around us. Again, we're not saying that's easy. I wish we could. We're not signing up for, elite, uh, for an easy life, easy life, not lies. You know, the way, the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. It led him to it, and he calls us to lay down our lives, to give up our rights, to offer our futures to him and for him. Do you feel sometimes that it's hard? It's hard to live out your faith. Does it feel like it's costly? That's okay. You know, we're not saying it won't be. At times, it's cost us everything. Honestly, it's cost us everything. But if he's the one holding you, he's worth it. He's worth the cost. There's no better place to be. He's healed our lives. He's changed us. He's restored us. And he'll do the same for you. He wants to do the same for you. Not only that, you know, he's placed you in a movement of local churches that believe in you, that are seeking the best for you, that want to see you live out your full potential and be everything that God has got for you. It's not about us having more of him for our purposes. It's about him having more of us for his purposes. Let's just go back to the, to the passage as we end. You know, Jesus borrows a donkey. Have you ever really thought about that? What a strange thing. What a mystery that he would do that. The God who created everything reveals himself in Jesus who has absolutely nothing. When Jesus performs the miracle of multiplying the food, he multiplies the five loaves and the, the two fish, he feeds the 5,000. You know, the gospels say that the five loaves and the two fish were borrowed from a little boy. Before that, he borrows a boat. Five days later, he's borrowing this donkey. His body was placed in a borrowed grave. Just, just for a minute, think about that. What God wants, and when God wants to do something in the world, he almost always does it by using and inviting a human being to partner with him in order to fulfill his purposes, not only in our lives, but in the world. He invites us to pray so that his desires will be accomplished in the world. God's chosen in this age to partner with us in accomplishing his purposes in the world. You know, so often in the New Testament, we read it so many times that the, the miracles happened in and through the hands of the disciples. He wants to do stuff and he wants to use you to do it. How will you respond? How will you carry the king, not only in your own life, but in the lives of those around you? You know, the opportunity that you currently have is unique. We want to encourage you to discover it and to embrace it. Listen attentively to Jesus's voice. Allow him to transform you. And when you've placed your security in him, go and live out the purposes of God in this generation. His love is powerful. His pursuit is bold. His voice is life-changing. And the awareness of his presence is everything.
We'll just finish with this. A.W. Tozer, a remarkable evangelist and prophet, prophet, once wrote a prayer. It's a prayer that's meant a great deal to us over the years. We regularly come back to it. We've been challenged by it. In fact, why don't you stand? You might want to make some of this or parts of this your own prayer tonight. Why don't you close your eyes as I pray? I come to you tonight, O Lord, to give up my rights, to lay down my life, to offer my future, to give my devotion, my skills, my energies. I shall not waste time deploring my weaknesses nor my unfittedness for the work. I acknowledge your choice in my life to make your Christ attractive and intelligible to those around me. I come to you for spiritual preparation. Put your hand upon me, anoint me with the oil of the one with good news. Save me from compromise, heal my soul from small ambitions, deliver me from the itch to always be right, save me from wasting time. I accept hard work, I ask for no easy place, help me not to judge others who walk a smoother path. Show me those things that diminish spiritual power in a soul. I now consecrate my days to you. Make your will more precious than anybody or anything. Fill me with your power. And when, at the end of life's journey, I see you face to face, may I hear those undeserved words. Well done, you good and faithful servant. I ask this not for myself but for the glory of the name of your son, Jesus.